my mom had a way. She was 5'4", but, man, she could bring you down. You could walk into her house and get the vibe. Oh, it's going to be a good day. Oh, it's not going to be a good day. Virginia, my mom's mom. My whole life, she's hung over our family history sort of like a masked villain. We never met her. Well, my sister did, once, as a baby. But she was present in other ways. My mom shared bits and pieces, enough for us to know that she had been physically abusive and manipulative in ways that our young minds couldn't quite grasp. And yet, our mother loved her. She said that there were two sides to her mom. There were the demons that would hit and slap and rip and hurt. And then there was the good side of Virginia that was loving, that shared a passion for reading, that always sang this one church song in the garden that I also remember hearing my own mother sing over the years, usually crying when she thought that we were in bed and she was alone. Mom always thought that her mother must have been bipolar, a disease nobody understood or spoke of back in the 40s. And from what I've been told, she was beautiful. I don't know if you, I don't know if Sherry had that picture. I think it was Bonnie that had it made, a picture of her skating. And her arms are way out, and she's on one leg, a beautiful little skate dress. It's all black and white, but it says, Oh, one of my mom's favorite songs uh, from from church was I Come to the Garden Alone While the Duel is Still on the Roses. Anyway, so Bonnie had this written, and it says Virginia Mae Bender Harris, 1920 to 1992. So the top picture is her, um, nobody smiles, Um, but the top picture was her sitting at a table with boarding school girls. Everybody's prim and proper. Then the other picture is her beautiful, wonderful, happy smile, like in high school, roller skating. And she was such an avid roller skater that it was it was just so crushing that she got polio. I haven't seen this picture, but that is my Aunt Julie describing it to me. Julie was the youngest of my mother's siblings. There were four of them in all. My mom, Cheryl Lynn Harris, born in February 1944. Her brother, Scotty, just about 18 months younger. Then came Bonnie a few years after that. And finally, Julie, the surprise baby, born 14 years after my mother. And Virginia was their mom. She was born in Ohio somewhere, and she was adopted. She moved to Washington State, and eventually she met my grandfather, a man who went by Bud. Before I started this project, I didn't even know what Bud's real name was. But these were my grandparents, and they raised my mom. They hurt her so badly that she eventually divorced the whole family, so to speak. And the pain they caused stayed with her for 78 years, up until the day she died. In her final days, as she lay on her deathbed, we could hear mom talking to her siblings, to Scotty 
and Abani, both of whom passed in the months before her. They never reconciled, and it pained my mother so much that she never got over it. And at the very end of her life, of all the things she could have been thinking about, it was her relationship with her siblings that she fixated on. Thankfully, she and Julie did reconnect a little bit in the final years, and Julie was willing to talk to me. She helped me dig back into the past and see what we could piece together. So that's what we'll cover here, now, in this episode. I'm Kat O'Shaughnessy Coffrin, and this is Lost and Found, my audio documentary about trying to unravel the complex relationships and heal the losses of my parents so I could find my truth and reclaim where I come from. This is Chapter 3, Virginia, or Mike. To start, I want to go back to that interview that I did, the first one with my sister. And didn't she... And Bud, mom's dad, they met at Boeing. I have no idea. But there was this whole thing that we heard at, at his, at her funeral, I think. And he called her something. I want to say he called her George or something because they had met during the war. She was part of the war effort. She was working at Boeing where he had worked. He was an engineer. Mm-hmm. And um, she wore like a jumpsuit with a man's name tag on it. And I want to say I've it was never heard this. You've never heard the story. Oh, I've never, <clears throat> never heard this. I'm going to put this down for a fact checking. I will get back to you on this. So I was partially right here. There was definitely a nickname, but it definitely was not George. Fortunately, we had Julie to set the record straight. His name is Edward Benjamin Jr., but he hated the junior. And he hated the name Edward. I don't know how it came about, but he wanted people to call him Bud. It was always Bud in Virginia and Bud and Mike. Tell me why he called her Mike. That is a mystery. He had two favorite horses growing up on the farm. One was Pat and one was Mike. He liked both horses, but he favored Mike. When he met my mom, he fell instantly in love with her. And he, she became the nickname Mike. Really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So there goes my romantic Boeing jumpsuit theory. But still, I wasn't totally wrong. My grandparents did meet at Boeing during World War II. You know how your parents met? Uh, they were riveters. And isn't that? How, yeah. And Boeing whatever or she was a riveter I don't know what he was doing but she she used to sit up on the side of the plane and she riveted (laughs) and there was a song called Rosie the Riveter at the time but he didn't call her Rosie he always called her Mike did she hate that (laughs) she liked it these stories they make me feel proud in a way the idea of these two people falling in love as riveters during the war at Boeing? That's part of my heritage. I like knowing it. And it also makes me sad. 
that I didn't ever have a firsthand connection to any of this and sad that I know what came later. Julie filled in some other gaps. I learned that Bud did not, in fact, go to college like I had thought, though he was an engineer. He trained to become an acoustic engineer at Boeing, where he stayed for the rest of his career. But I also learned that before all of that, before the war, he was a pastry chef, which I had never heard. Julie says that he taught all of his kids how to ice a cake. But my mother never really baked with us. She wasn't great at it. And if you ask my own kids, they will be very quick to tell you what a disaster I am with baking myself. We made the world's worst holiday cookies a few years ago, so bad that we couldn't bear to hand them out to teachers at school. The frosting turned out this kind of lime green and hot pink. The girls still tease me about this. Maybe, maybe baking made mom sad. Or maybe it was just something that she didn't really think about at all. I don't know. But the real reason I had wanted to talk to Julie was about the abuse. To me, her mother's mental illness and physical violence had been a fact of my mother's childhood. And I was always confused about how these children could have grown up in the same household and somehow splintered instead of growing closer. I wanted to know if we could figure out where this had all come from and how it eventually drove them all apart. You know, I know she has a bad rap and we've all been treated differently by her, but she had a really rough beginning. And anyway, children's lives are so affected by their parents, I'm sure as you know. So we've all were treated a little bit differently, but Sherry and Scotty, 18 months apart, were kind of like, you know, twins. So they shared a lot of stuff. But anyway, but we just, I, there's so much I don't know about her background. So. so here is what we do know about her background. This is what we began to piece together from Julie and also from my mom's cousin, Gail. After Virginia, or Mike, if you will, meets Bud at Boeing, they marry sometime in her early 20s. In 1944, when she was about 24, they have my mom. Sometime around then, Bud deploys with the Army to the front lines of World War II. And meanwhile, back at home, Virginia contracts polio. And then they put her into quarantine at the hospital. He got an honorable discharge to come home and take care of his wife, who was quarantined in the hospital for a long time with polio. And he used to take Sherry, and they'd stand outside the window of the hospital, because you couldn't go in when you're quarantined, and wave to Mom. Oh, my gosh. That's so sad to me. I'm sorry. Okay, so here's this woman. She's already had a dubious start in life. She becomes a first-time mom, and then she's alone with this baby, her first, as her husband goes off to fight in the war. And then she contracts polio. 
And not only is she shut away from her baby, but she loses access to her passion to this roller skating all in one fell swoop. The story also goes that she was told she could never have more children. And so she's grieving this. And my poor mother, a newborn, is kept from her own mother's embrace in the earliest months of her life. I can't even imagine what that must have done for her. Of course, later, Virginia did have more kids. Depending on who you talk to, it was either Scotty or Bonnie who was then seen as this miracle baby after the polio and always treated a little bit differently than the rest of the kids. But what I keep thinking about is what kind of toll did these events take on Mike? I heard so many times about these horrible things about her flying into a rage, tearing off my mother's dresses while she was waiting for the school bus in the morning. Has she struck her children with a cast iron pan on the head? She told them lies to manipulate and keep them from uniting against her. I heard about how, after these fits, Virginia would break down in tears, apologizing to her kids that she was unable to control her own emotions. And they would cry with her. And about how the school nurse would take my mom aside when she showed up with bruises and cuts. And mom could never bring herself to betray her parents and tell the truth. My mom thought Virginia was bipolar or maybe manic depressive. Whatever it was, she likely suffered from something they didn't have a common name for or understanding of back then. I don't know much about polio, but I find myself wondering if that could have possibly exacerbated any latent challenges she had with mental illness earlier in her life. At the very least, I'm sure the circumstances didn't help. And now as I think about what I've just learned, I can suddenly see a slightly more nuanced picture of this woman, a first-time mom in the midst of war, so isolated and alone, and forever changed by this insidious disease in a society, and at a time when there was no support for mental illness. And for the first time, when I was talking to my Aunt Julie, I felt this piercing, uncomplicated surge of pure compassion for Virginia. Because when I became a mom for the first time in 2014, I remember I had some complications myself. I experienced some postpartum depression, but I didn't even realize or understand that that's what it was. I remember being afraid of the nighttime when I would be up for hours trying unsuccessfully to nurse and that I would pump and I was just trying to keep my daughter alive. It was enough to make me feel, at moments, like I was going crazy. I remember I felt trapped. And I spent many months in therapy trying to understand and heal from that experience. So in just the tiniest of ways, 
I suppose that now I can connect with this grandmother who I never knew. And maybe, just a little bit, I feel I can connect more with her across time. I want to say to her, I see you now. I'm sorry for what you went through. And I won't let this cycle continue. So meanwhile, my mother, she spends her childhood learning how to pull herself forward by choosing to focus only, fastidiously, on the positive. When Mike was abusive, Bud stayed out of it. From what I heard, her siblings tended to favor their dad because he didn't hurt them. And mom felt like she was mostly alone. Somehow she cultivated this ferocious optimism and she did pull herself out of that place. And I think it was mostly through her love of reading. Sherry could cope with life if she had a book in her hand and she read, read, read. Well, I'm sure you know that, but even as a child, she read every book there was to read and Bonnie says that Sherry would escape with a book oh if there is any true thing in this world is that my mother loved books throughout my whole life I would watch her disappear from the things that troubled her and sink into her books it was kind of amazing to hear something so true something that I knew so to my core this intimate knowledge about my mom shared with me from Julie. When we spoke, it made me feel closer to Julie, to both of them. But there was another layer to this behavior. Mom compartmentalized to an incredible degree. For all of her life, she refused to dwell on the tragic, the traumatic, and the saddest things in her and our life. I knew this was how she survived everything she went through, but it was still stunning to hear Julie talk about how the behavior began all the way back in those very earliest days. Oh, yeah. Sherry made everything look really, really good. Bonnie and I used to get mad at her because she hid everything so much from us. Everything was always great. Everything was just fine. And then she'd switch it over to you, like, now tell me about your school, Julie. You know, and she had a very good way, you know, um, of putting it back on you. And pretty soon you realize, oh, I'm talking about myself now. This. This. This is my mom. I never saw it as clearly in her life as I can see it now, especially after all these conversations. Mom didn't confide in anyone. And I don't think it was because she couldn't trust people. I think it was actually 
the only way that she knew how to carry on and survive. If we fast forward a bit, mom turns 18 and she graduates from high school. And she said that her parents drove her to her dorm room at Seattle Pacific University. They gave her something like $20. And they said, you're not our problem anymore. I do know she put herself through school working many jobs. There was one at a pharmacy, one at a soda fountain. And according to some memoirs that she wrote, this was all thanks to the kindness of a guidance counselor who may have helped her forge a financial aid application. In her junior year, for reasons that I was never sure of, she did transfer over to the University of Washington for just one year where she roomed with her friend from junior high school, Barb Umfenauer. Barb and mom remained friends throughout their entire lives. She was one of the last people to communicate with my mother, and she has always been so special to me. So we caught up for this project, and I had a chance to ask her some of my questions. Junior year, I think, that she came. No, no, yeah, junior year. Then she went back to SPU to uh, graduate. And she came for, I think, literature classes that she couldn't get there. And I remember one was uh, Shakespeare. Because it was so ironic that she, she, I don't know if I ever described our dorm room, but she was side by side. It was like one long desk and side by side. Can you imagine how can you study if you are talking and, and thinking about other things? And we both had boyfriends at the time. And, and then we're trying to study. So but I remember her quoting a lot of Shakespeare. And did you get a sense, did she bring the pain and sadness of what was going on at home with her to school or was it almost like not existent when she was at school? Well, I wrote something down when I was thinking about that, um, that she compartmentalized. Mm. I guess we all do. Compartmentalizing, even with Barb, who grew up with mom. She had been to her childhood home seen her grow up, and then got to share a dorm room with mom in college. Even Barb didn't get let in on that pain. But also, Shakespeare. I had never heard this, but it does track. Mom loved literature, obviously. And suddenly I started to see in my mind, she had had these quotes from his plays framed all around our house growing up. I remember one from a Midsummer Night's Dream. I must go seek some dewdrops here and hang a pearl on every cowslip's ear. We used to say it to each other when I was in high school. Barb helped me piece together the next few pieces of the story here too. The boyfriend that Barb references was a man named Ron, who mom dated and then married right after college. Everyone describes him as very good looking, and not very bright. I think their meeting may have had something to do with tennis, but I don't know much more about that one. Anyway, they marry in the backyard of mom's childhood home, though she, by all accounts, had wanted a church wedding and was very upset about this. Then they moved to Oregon, where mom got some of her earliest teaching jobs, and she convinces Ron to enter into junior college. While there, he meets and falls in love with another woman named Eve. And he begs mom to let Eve live with them 
in what I think was a trailer. That was their home. And mom, she does for a time. She even helped pay for Eve's tuition. But eventually it sounds like her sister Bonnie, of all people, came down and helped rescue her out of that situation. Mom then returns to Seattle and moves into an apartment and I like to imagine has the first true liberating period in her life. So she'd gone from this abusive childhood home to abusive marital home with only college in between. She was caretaking for other people. And now, suddenly, she's free on her own. And one night, she goes out dancing at a tavern and meets my dad. So she moves home, and what I imagine happening here is she finally has this very delayed kind of like late adolescence. She starts partying. She's living at home. Oh, Yeah. She's gorgeous. These photos. She needs gorgeous. I always wanted to look like her. Oh my gosh! I can't believe those photos. She's radiant, and she meets my dad. Yes. And they get. And he was a looker. I like Kevin from day one. Uh, Yeah. What was he like when you met him? Do you remember? Was he the nicest guy in the world? Nicest guy in the world. Funny. And then he had all those dogs. (laughs) Always, you know. Um, and, and, uh, and I could tell he loved Sherry. My dad liked Kevin. Really? My first husband, Jim, liked Kevin. And then my second husband, <laughs> liked Kevin a lot. Everybody liked Kevin. And she was an and element. This was around 1973. And then, and 1976 was their wedding. And that cross-country road trip in the yellow van. And in 1979, Jen comes along. 1981 is the shooting. And we're mostly caught up here. But the last thing I need to cover in this episode is the falling out. I still haven't addressed with Julie what exactly went down when my mom finally ended her relationship with her parents. Obviously, there was a lot of pain and anger there. But for the most part, Virginia and Bud and Julie and Bonnie were all in mom's life all the way through her marriage to dad and her first child. So what happened around 1980 or 1981 that ended things? I needed to compare notes with Julie because I had heard one version of the story my whole life from mom. But I couldn't understand why Julie and the other siblings didn't see things the same way. Something didn't quite match up. So I asked Julie to let me see if we could sort things out. In your view, when did mom, was there sort of an ending to her relationship with your parents? Like, did it? Yes. Did they? Yes. What do you remember Um, about that? Well, uh, I'll tell you. Oh, God. Okay, I have a really bad memory of having Christmas at my brother's house. And she brought Jennifer in, cute little Jennifer. And um, my mom's all sitting like the Queen of England on the couch. And, um, pre- well, she didn't say present the baby, but Sherry brought the baby, Jennifer, um, and put her in her lap. 
And then I don't really know what happened because I didn't want to sit with my mom. Anyway, uh, then I remember Sherry raising her voice in a nice Sherry way and picked up Jennifer and said, we're going, we're going home now. Later I found out that she, well, Sherry didn't like the way she was holding Jennifer and thought she was going to drop her on the floor. Mother bear, I understand that. I'm I'm still mama bear to my kids, and they're grown up. And she left. And I never really heard what happened about that because Sherry shut down. She shut down. So then mm. um, she wanted to have a meeting with my dad at Denny's out by, well, Factoria Bellevue. And my dad, just, just my dad, he was like, whoa why don't you want to have your mother come? And he was, she was like, because I just want to talk to you, Daddy. We always called him Daddy. And he said, okay, I'll be there. And he was there. And she gave him the ultimatum. It's either me or Mom. And if you want to see the grandkids, well, I think you weren't born yet. But anyway, if you want to see Jennifer, the baby, whatever, um, you have to make a choice because I will not put my children, have her have them involved with a woman that's as crazy. And my this is coming from my dad telling me the story, okay? And my yeah. dad stood up calmly, because he wasn't an aggressive, violent man, stood up and he said, if you're going to give me that ultimatum, then I will always choose your mother first. So I guess this is goodbye. Wow. So, did you know that story? Well, I'm going to tell you the story I did know. Oh. So I remember hearing about some variation of what you said that mom had yeah. done over when she was a baby. And I thought it was something like she wanted to trust her mother with Jen and she tried and she walked away and went out of the room and came back and like, Virginia has left Jen in some kind of like not safe situation on the couch or some some variation. Oh, oh you know I could be wrong. But something like that, right? So there's. But I was in high school, happened. you know, or no? Sure. No, I, I mean, and these are very specific details. So I was so like she 24. didn't feel like she could trust her mom, and what she said is, "I need you to get help." She said she spent so many years begging her mom to go get some psychiatric help to help her. That's right. And her okay. Mom, Finally that, does and yeah. gets to start seeing a psychiatrist. What my mom told me is that Bud finds out and is livid, does not support this, storms into a psychiatrist session and says, no wife of mine will be seen seeing a doctor like this and says no. And he puts on the ultimatum and says, nope, you can't go and takes her out. And my mom said, you have to get this help if you want to be in my family around my children. And they, they slash your dad said no. So it's interesting. Well, I never knew that he did that. No one ever told me. Sherry never told me that. I wish she would have. It's crazy. Oh, my God. How many years went by without saying these things? You know, that's why I was always so confused. And I think that's why she always felt such a fun affair mother, because I think she really felt she was sick. Yes, she was sick. 
is very, very sick. I had always wondered about this falling out. And in the end, it feels like there just isn't that much there. Just a lot of pain, anger, and disappointment. Virginia died about 10 years later from a brain aneurysm while sitting at the kitchen table. Bud tried and failed to revive her. I remember that my mom was devastated. Bud died another decade or so after that, and then they were gone. Bonnie, like my mom, had dementia. Hers was Louie body. It came on very quickly and took her in August 2021. And Scotty, also like my mom, ended up with MS. He died at the end of that same year. And mom died a few months later. All of them dying within the same year. All of them carrying this unreconciled rift. But it felt so healing to talk to Julie and mend what we could together. Jen told me that there was a story that mom went to the uh, the library in Renton so many times that they one day said to her, Cheryl, we have no more books for you. <laughs> oh, that's that story. She read her way through the whole children's section and said, do you know, we spread her ashes in the Cedar River because it goes right under the library. Okay, so you just made my day. So if you ever want to talk to her, go sit there, okay? Because that was her safe place. Oh, my God. And I just wanted to ask, and you don't have to answer this now, but if she was here today, if there is anything that you wish that we could just say to her, what would you say with a clear mind that she could hear you? What would I say? Well, then I've always loved her, and she's always been my mentor. I wouldn't be the teacher I am today without my sister Sherry. And you don't know how many people I have told in my career, okay? Because I was going to go the other way, the bad way, because I just wanted to get out of my house, okay? Like we all did. And I just would want her to know what a light she was in my life. And I just don't think I told her that enough. I knew a lot about my mom's past, but it's always felt so distant, separate from me. Something that I had heard about many years ago, but never touched or experienced myself. Talking to Julie was one of the highlights of this whole project. It made me feel comforted, connected, and also deeply sad for all of those years that went by in silence. But if this project is about what's lost and found, 
so much was found in this chapter. And now I want to go forward. I want to look more closely at what happened after that 1981 shooting. Around the time I actually did arrive. I want to hear a little bit from my dad himself. So join me in the next episode. Chapter four, the shadow of my drunk father. Be the same.